Well, good morning. It's good to be with you again. I had the privilege of joining you, uh, I don't know, a couple months back and getting to worship with you here and, and uh, come and bring you God's Word. And it's my privilege, privilege to do so again and uh, send you greetings from Emmanuel Baptist Church. I'm thankful for your and our partnership in the gospel, and it's a wonderful thing to be able to see churches supporting one another in a way that we can serve you and giving uh, Pastor Eric a little time away. We're praying that he's uh, being refreshed, and so we've had a couple of the brothers from Emmanuel come up, um, I think a few more as well. So thankful to, to join with you this morning and be a part of what God is doing here in, in Placer County. If you have your Bibles this morning, would you go ahead and take them and turn to Matthew chapter 9? As we just uh, heard God's Word being read, our focus this, this morning will be Matthew chapter 9. Looking there at the verses 35 through 38, anticipating that the Lord not only desires but will be faithful to speak to his church this morning through his word, as was prayed, sanctifying us, building us up, calling us to faith and repentance and trusting in the goodness of the gospel. So as we anticipate that, as he has promised that he would be faithful to do those very things, let's go to him in prayer and ask that he would help us this morning. Father, we worship you and we thank you for the graciousness of your gift in giving to us your own word. Lord, we confess that we can often take it for granted and not just the copies of your word that we have around us and the access to it, but that we take it for granted that you have even spoken to us, that you have been so merciful and kind to speak into our darkness to illuminate who we are, who you are by your word, to show us our need and to show us Christ. And so we bless you this morning and we thank you that what we have here before us is so much more than just philosophy or, or humanly wisdom or even just trite sayings, but it's you yourself speaking to us, revealing to us your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray for the help and the aid of your own spirit, that you have promised that you would send your spirit, that you would give us your spirit, and that you would illuminate your truth, that you would lead us into truth, and that you would apply to our hearts what is necessary, and that you would show us Christ. And so this morning we pray that you would be faithful to your own promise, that you would help me, the one who preaches, and that you would help us as hearers to receive your word with meekness, the implanted word that's able to save our souls. We ask all of this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, you may know that it wasn't that long ago that pictures, uh, especially portraits of people, served a very important purpose. Uh, now, in our present culture, in our present day, pictures have become uh, more or less an accessory to our lives than so much a necessity as maybe they once were, because as you know, we're now able to document every imaginable event with a multitude of angles and a myriad of filters. And we know that prior to this technology that we carry around in our pockets, it wasn't always this way. Portraits were much less frequent. And you can make the case that they were far more important. Because in days past, a picture really gave some sense of, of a person's likeness. Maybe a person that you never knew. But that, that portrait gave some sense of, of who they were. And families often just simply had one single portrait of, of, of a beloved family member so that they might be able to show future generations who that man was or, or who that woman was. And in that sense, 
portraits helped others to know what was, what was he like or what was she like. Now, in a similar way, the scriptures and especially the gospels serve as that portrait of Jesus as they help us see exactly who he was. What did he do? What was he about? How might we know him? And so at various points in Matthew's gospel, he gives us not only the, this, this account of who Jesus was, but these brief summary statements that kind of wind up everything that has been happening or will be about to happen. And what we have before us this morning is one of these brief summary statements that tells us much of what's going on in Matthew, but in encapsulated form with a very particular application to it. It's probably helpful to notice that the text that is here before us, verses 35 through uh, 38, is really just a bookend. It's the second bookend of something that's come before. And if you turn over just a few pages to the left to chapter 4, you'll notice what I mean. Matthew chapter 4, uh, looking down at verse 23. Keep in mind of the scripture that we just heard read is what is the focus this morning. And then in chapter 4, we read, And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Almost identical in word for word for what we have in chapter 9, verse 35, being that summary statement. So think of them as two bookends that might be on your shelf. And then what lies in between them is something very important as Matthew is unfolding his narrative and his gospel. Because in between these two summary statements, what do we see? Exactly what Matthew describes here. Chapters 5 through 7, we have Jesus teaching. We see the Messiah in word as chapters 5 through 7. We have the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus unfolds what it means to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. And then in chapters 8 and for the beginning of chapter 9, you see the Messiah at work as he's declaring his authority by healing. Declaring that he has authority over demons, over sickness, over sin. And so Matthew makes clear for us that Jesus has come to do these things, to teach, to preach about the kingdom, and to heal. But here in chapter 9, something else is inserted, something that is critical for us to see. Matthew makes clear that Jesus has not simply come to declare this message of good news, to draw followers unto himself, but he has also come to send. He has come to send people out with this same message that he has been speaking. Now this aspect of discipleship is so foundational to our lives. It's so foundational to Christian practice, isn't it? Because you may know that to be a disciple, it certainly means to be a learner, uh, an apprentice, a follower. And if we would be true to our apprenticeship, we would not be content as merely learners intellectually, but apprentice Christ, as he himself said, I will send. I will send my church. I will send my people with the same announcement. We are those who gather to hear and to proclaim this gospel of, of the kingdom, but we're also those who then scatter throughout our work weeks and our homes and our co-ops and our families taking this message with us. The question that I want to ask this morning is why? Why, if we are disciples of Christ, 
Are we not content simply to gather and to learn, but why are we those who are compelled to be sent and to send? The question of motive, the question of why. Why are we not content to hoard this message for ourselves? You're here in a nice climate-controlled room, the Word of God open before you, singing with God's people. Why are you not content with this? Why should you not be content with this? What compels a Christian to take this message beyond our homes? What compels us as disciples of Christ to see this move beyond a church building, into our workplace, into our neighborhoods, and into nations beyond us? Well, to answer that question, all we need to do is to look to Jesus and learn from him like a good disciple would do. So what I want us to see this morning in order to answer that question of why is that we must first of all see the heart of Christ and then we must hear the response of Christ. The heart of Christ and the response of Christ. Look back at verse 36 where we see the actual heart of Jesus. He went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I think part of the sweetness and the closeness of any particular relationship is knowing how that other person feels about something or what they are thinking in that particular moment. Think of the closeness of some of the friendships that you have and as you are experiencing the same event, you can just look at them in the face and you know that they are thinking the same exact thing and that that is that particular bond that you share. That we don't even have to say anything to each other, but I I know what you're feeling right now. I know what you're thinking. And that, that closeness unites us as we are thinking along the same lines. That's a part of the awkwardness, isn't it? In some situations and relationships where you just have no idea what the person is thinking. You don't know how to read them, and there's just this awkward silence there. Well, how wonderful that in this passage, we are given an intimate portrait of the heart of Christ. We're not left to wonder how he feels. We're not left to wonder what is he thinking as he sees the masses of people. We are told, first of all, of his compassion. I love the way the New American Standard reads this or phrases this just a little differently. It says, seeing the people, he felt compassion. Seeing, he felt The Greek word here for compassion speaks literally of this sensation in your guts. But metaphorically, it speaks of this emotional sensation. Uh, We might say things like, um, that's heartbreaking. Or or, that is gut-wrenching. Or that is just head spinning. There's sort of images that that we use that that we're using metaphorically, but we're using physical attributes of it, whether it's mind or heart or guts. That's what this original word means. As Jesus saw the multitudes, he felt compassion. Gut-wrenching would be a similar translation or paraphrase. So Jesus sees the crowds, he's deeply moved, and he's aching for them. This would be the opposite, as Matthew is doing 
but by the inspiration of the Spirit doing his, his best to show the very opposite of the callousness and the apathy of so much of the fallen human condition. So much of what often happens when we are repeatedly exposed to various forms of suffering. Unfortunately, we become desensitized, don't we? The first time you may see that person on that same off-ramp, it hits you. But the 20th time, you don't notice. We hear of things happening in our nation or in our world, and you say, how could anybody do that or live through that? But you see it a few more times, and you just swipe past. Unfortunately, that is what happens to a calloused heart in a fallen world that we just become normalized to it, but not Jesus. He is the eternal one. He has seen suffering since the moment of the fall. He has seen generation after generation walk through the foolishness of sin and endure the consequences of sin. And here is God in the flesh. And what does he do? He feels compassion. He is moved with compassion for what he sees. Now, how do you imagine Jesus looking at our world today? How would he see individual homes? How, how would he see churches or communities or, or people filling churches today? The wonderful revelation of Scripture right here before us is that although God sees everything as it, as it really is, he is not, he's not, he's not callous or apathetic towards it in the least. He is compassionate. The God of the Bible is not detached from suffering. The God of the Bible is not detached from the hurt of humanity. In fact, the scriptures say the opposite, don't they? That God is so concerned about suffering, that he is so concerned about what is happening to our world, that he actually entered into our helpless state. God himself actually suffered in order to deal with suffering. That's the degree that he is not compassionate at all or, or not calloused in any way. So if you're here this morning and you are reeling from some affliction, some, some hardship, or within your own family or within your own friends, there is just some sickness or disease or hardship or guilt or sorrow that is, that is wrecking you. Scriptures would have you know that Christ himself sees and that he is compassionate. He is moved with compassion as he looks upon us in our state. We're meant to see not only his compassion, but Matthew would want us also to see, secondly, the heart of Christ in regards to their condition. His compassion for them and their condition. It would be helpful to notice and ask this question, what was it specifically that moved Jesus in this way. Matthew tells us that upon seeing the people, he saw their true condition, that they were, notice, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, if you're at all familiar with your Bibles, you know that one of the repeated images of Scripture is to describe God's people as sheep. It's one of the repeating themes of the narrative of, old, of the Old Testament and a favorite image of the scriptures. And you look at that and you see why it makes perfect sense. Sheep thrive when they feel protected, when they're led well, when they're cared for by a shepherd. But apart from that, what are they? They're vulnerable. They're weak. 
They're miserable on their own. Matthew tells us that they were harassed. This word really falls short of of, of all the pathos and all, all of the description of, of the original language. And in, in the Greek, it literally means that they were filleted open or that they were skinned, harassed, that they were battered, that they were mangled, that they were ripped apart by wild animals. Now, of course, as Matthew is laying out his gospel, he, he's wanting us to see that that is that's not physically necessarily what is happening, but spiritually, this is what is happening to them. These people are harassed and beaten. He says, secondly, they're helpless. They had been thrown to the ground. They've been so broken or wounded that they're literally immobilized. You're you're helpless to do anything. Jesus sees the people as he is moving throughout the cities of Galilee, and he's teaching, and he's healing, and he's moved with compassion because they are beaten, filleted open, knocked down, immobilized. This is what moves him to compassion. They are without a shepherd. They're they're without a caretaker. They're without a leader, a protector. So through Matthew's account, we learn, really, that the people that claimed to be their shepherds were not. The scribes and the Pharisees, who were to be the teachers, the leaders, the shepherds, as it were, they actually only perpetuated the misery that these people were living in. They were unloving, they were uncaring, they were self-righteous leaders who only added legalistic burdens to the people, and Jesus is moved with the compassion in this instance. Now, the image of the shepherdless sheep has a strong tie to, to Old Testament roots. It's always helpful to read our New Testaments with this backdrop of, of Old Testament language and imagery. And shepherdless sheep is certainly one of those themes that we find throughout the Old Testament. In Numbers 27, verse 17, we're told that Moses was a shepherd himself and he prayed for a successor so that the people would not be like sheep without a shepherd. That's exactly what Jesus describes them as here. In the book of Ezekiel, we have this entire chapter devoted to the rebuking of the false shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves, do not take care of the flock, and so the sheep were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched to look for them. That's the indictment that God brings to the prophet Ezekiel. The most scathing, I think, of all of these passages found in the Old Testament is in Zechariah, this chapter where God just denounces the wicked shepherds of Israel for forsaking the flock. So you see this throughout the Old Testament, and then you brought to this place saying, what is God going to do? Ezekiel 34, verse 11. Listen to the promise of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. And of course, we know the echo to this, the other shoe that drops in the New Testament is John chapter 10, where Christ stands before the people and he says, I am the good shepherd. Put that in the context of all of this in the Old Testament. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep in contrast to what we heard in Ezekiel. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, he who does not own the sheep, sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. He says again, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. 
Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus himself vows to be the shepherd that his people need. He does not neglect, he does not abuse, he does not beat his sheep. He goes after them to the extent that he even sacrifices his own life to bring them to himself. So notice this with me, just in passing. Notice the context of what is happening of these people, helpless and harassed, Jesus seeing them without a shepherd. Connect the dots there. The remedy for lives that are harassed, that you could say are helpless, the remedy for those lives that are bruised and broken is not a change of circumstances. It's not just get them out of there, and that ultimately will fix everything. The remedy for such lives is not even just relief of that particular affliction. The ultimate need for such lives is for a shepherd. That is the true need, the deep need, the need underneath every other need is for our lives to be guarded by, watched over by this shepherd. Now this means that if we are seeking relief from our helpless estate, and whatever that might be, whatever is pressing in upon you to make you aware that I am helpless, you might even say I am harassed, if we're seeking relief apart from Christ, we will not know true relief. We will not know the ultimate care that we need. We will not know the soul care that we will need. The scriptures compel us to look to Christ, who is the great shepherd of the sheep and the overseer of your soul. Christ is in the habit of, of finding his sheep in, in precarious places and rescuing them and leading them to green pastures, feeding them, providing for them, rescuing them from sin, rescuing from the snares of the enemy. The hope for broken lives, then, is nothing less than the good shepherd himself. And so as we see Christ here in, in the Gospels, we see the heart of Christ moved with compassion for broken people. Seeing his heart, we need then, secondly, to hear his response. What does he say in response to this? Look down at verse 37 in your Bibles. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I wonder... I wonder if we're meant to see the connection between these two images that Jesus uses here. Sheep without a shepherd and a harvest without laborers. We sometimes are more familiar with verses 37 and 38, maybe going to a missions conference and hearing this preached. But I think by God's design and wisdom, we're not to detach these two verses from the verses before. Jesus there with the people, seeing them harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and a harvest without laborers. Two different images, both pointing at the same reality. Jesus didn't suddenly move and go to a different town. He's in the same spot. He pauses, takes a breath, and says, therefore. I'm willing to bet, though, that what Jesus calls a harvest, you and I 
a lot of times call a headache. Think about the description of these people. If we connect the two images, we can conclude that a ripe harvest is probably going to be messy and inconvenient. Think about the context here. People who are harassed, people who are helpless, they're needy. That oftentimes means they're bitter. That oftentimes means that they're closed off, that they're unthankful, that they are irritable. That's the reality. But often, for some reason, we imagine that a, a revival of sorts, you know, the harvest being ripe, for some reason, we imagine that looks like a line out the door where well-dressed people with stable incomes and open Bibles say, sirs, what must we do to be saved? That's for some reason what we picture just a ripe harvest looking like, but yet read this in the context of what Matthew says. Usually the harvest looks like sitting down on a couch next to someone or at a table across from someone as they weep over a recent divorce or they share their confusion or their frustration over their job or their kids. Things like bankruptcy, midlife crisis, things like addiction and guilt and shame and discouragement. Those are the topics of conversation. That is the harvest that is ripe. People that are harassed and helpless. And Christ says, look, the fields are white. Look at these people harassed and helpless. Look at them like sheep without a shepherd. That is a harvest. Helping someone wrestle through questions of their own identity, life's great purpose. Church, these are the fields that are white for harvest. Don't dismiss that. Don't think that just to be the headaches or the inconvenience or just this particular person and their messy life. Those are the means by which God often uses those very pressing needs to reveal the deep and abiding need for forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God. The harvest may be very white, but it may look very unlike what you and I think it should. When we see people as Jesus sees them, we begin to get a sense of the enormity of need and the eternality of what is at stake. You, right now, may already be thinking of those in your life that are so desperately needing this good shepherd. What do you do at this moment? Now, if you're a type A, task-driven, strategic thinker with organizational skills, You've already moved on from what Jesus has just said, and you're starting to think of what you must do. But if at this point we close our Bibles and just say, the need is great. Many people are hurting. Let's get to work. We've missed the point. We've missed Jesus' application. We've missed the thrust at which all of this is driving to. If we do that, we expose the fact 
that we are seriously underestimating the enormity of the task and the nature of what must be done. Because Christ does not say, the fields are white for harvest, get to work. He says what? Pray. The response of Christ is not only to recognize that the fields are white for harvest, but to teach us, command us, to therefore pray. Pray. From the direness of the situation, you would expect Jesus to say, drop everything, go, and meet those needs. And how often do we do that? But what Jesus says and what he teaches disciples to do is the opposite. He doesn't say, go and do. He says, go and pray. Now, this is just one example of many of how the kingdom of God is so contrary to human nature, isn't it? I see the need. It's in front of me. Let's get to work. Yet, Christ in his teaching says, actually, the needs are so great, the conditions are so bad, that the greatest and most pressing thing you and I could do is to pray. Why? Because it reveals the truth about what we know of the situation. Because when we pray, we are simultaneously declaring that God is great in his ability, and we're declaring our own inability. We're looking to the one who has power. The need is great. You are the great one. I don't have what I need. I don't have what they need. They don't have what they need. We are simultaneously declaring God's greatness and our dependence upon him when we go to him in prayer. Through prayer, we're confessing God to be full of wisdom. We're we're confessing him to be full of goodness and mercy. Prayer is our greatest expression of our glad dependence upon God's good ability. More than words do, more than actions do. Prayer is that sign, that hat tip that says, God is greater than this situation and than what I have. Now, prayer is not a substitute for labor. Prayer is not a substitute for obedience. But Christ would have us to see that the work is so great and the the need so crucial that it cannot be done without prayer. It would be foolish to think that we could just simply go. To appreciate the magnitude of the need is to be driven to prayer. That's how you know just exactly what you're dealing with when you begin to pray. The conversion of a soul is a supernatural work that you and I cannot manipulate, bring about by just simple education, move forward by environment or lighting or tone of voice or guilt. True conversion is only a work of the Spirit of God where He causes dead men and women to be alive. Faith is not something that you can deposit into somebody's mind or heart or put words in their mouth. Faith is a gift of God. So if the greatest need is of conversion and of faith and repentance, which God alone can do, church, why are we not the first ones to say, oh, God, help? Because that is what is at stake here. The various needs that come to the fruit, the the fruit that comes to the surface, they they are many and myriad. But Lord, the great need of this moment, the eternal need of this soul, is to see you as you are, to see themselves as sinners in need of repentance. 
Only God can work such a miracle, and therefore we go to him. So let me ask you, what needs do you see? As you think about maybe aging parents, a boss, a teacher, a friend that you have come to know recently, a sister, a brother, the man across the street, the needs that you see there, are we compelled to pray? Are we compelled to go and pray? But Jesus doesn't just say, pray. He says, secondly, pray earnestly. Seeing the harvest being white or ripe, pray, pray earnestly. To pray earnestly means that we pray with desire. It means that you pray with great longing. To pray as one begging, I think would be safe to say. Do you know this kind of prayer? To pray earnestly, to pray as a beggar. Have you ever been so broken for a particular people or, or a particular situation that it just feels like this, this all-consuming desire? Lord, and sometimes words fail you. Here's the simple fact of the matter. It is only when we are moved with compassion that we will pray with great earnestness. You can't fake earnestness. And the only reason we will ever end up in that place of feeling like desperate beggars is when we have the compassion of Christ to see the reality of what is actually at stake and what is actually happening. I remember one of the missions trip that we took with a church was to northern Ghana to there help strengthen the churches and establish a Bible training school in the north of Ghana. And the first day of, of being in the country after we traveled 18 hours by bus, we gathered into one of the little rooms there. And uh, just briefly after meeting with one of the pastors at the church and seeing the, the witchcraft, the demonic oppression, seeing the poverty and the corruption, we just came aside, eight or ten of us, and we begin to pray. Now, I don't remember the specific prayers or language that we used, but there was a tone in that little room that was, that was palpable, that, that we were desperate. Not only in the sense of like, God, we don't know what to do here, but being broken and just seeing the, the deception that was happening. Driving around then and seeing established churches and, and the... The, the billboards that what they were advertising was this prosperity gospel that was just salt water, hoping to satisfy people and even, even being even more broken for the situation and saying, Lord, unless you do something. And it was a wonderful experience of being brought to this place of actually sensing how desperate we really are. Who are we among so many? And, and what is this need that we could ever actually attempt to do something? There is a sense of earnestness that is the fruit of compassion. When we get, glimpse the magnitude of the need, we can do nothing but pray earnestly. So what does Christ say when we hear him? He says, pray. He says, pray earnestly. But thirdly, he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. There's even more instruction here. It's not just earnest prayer. Remember who you're praying to. And it is always so good to remember who you and I are praying to. Jesus says you're praying to the Lord. The Lord of the harvest. That means what? It means it's his field. 
It means it's his field, not ours. It means it's his harvest, not ours. It means it's his tools, his methods, his purposes. It's all his because he's the Lord. He is the Lord of the harvest. This is essential to remember as it keeps us from pragmatism that compels us to adopt whatever means necessary to simply meet the need. When we stop and we are humbled and we say, it's the Lord's harvest, I'm just a worker, then we are going to be pretty quick to stop and to think, how would the Lord want his harvested brought in? Has he given us any methods? Has he given us any instruction? Has he given us any teaching? Because it's not my field. It's his. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. As we pray, we are speaking to that one. We are speaking to the Lord, the ruler, the overseer, the rightful owner of the harvest. This kind of prayer reminds us that it's God's world, not ours. That it is these people belong to him. He owns the fields, the barn, the tools, the workers. All of it is his. Therefore, as the Lord of the harvest, what would he want? Pray. Pray earnestly. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. And then lastly, number four, pray that he would send laborers. That's what Jesus says in response to this. When we pray that God would send his laborers into his harvest, we are reminded, number one, that the work is bigger than us. It's a call for help. Look at this harvest. Send reinforcements. Send laborers. Send more help. We're not simply praying, God, bless our efforts. We're saying, God, our efforts are not nearly enough. Send more. Send more laborers into your harvest. Now, we probably see the needs right in front of us, the needs that are in our own home, uh, with our neighbors, with our extended family. We might even feel, to some extent, the need that is here in, in Placer County or Sacramento County. Perhaps you take a, a weekend trip to San Francisco or to Reno, and you have some sense of the needs that are beyond our counties here. Now, our own state is certainly becoming a mission field. You could almost make the case that the great call is not always to go, but sometimes to stay. To stay and be a Christian who is submitted to the Scriptures, who is a faithful member of a local church, who's covenanted to other believers and submitted to the Lord's and to His means to reach the world through the church. That is a powerful statement in this present culture. But what if we looked even further out? For God's work of redemption will be comprised, we know, from every tribe, every tongue, every, every nation. What if we begin to pray in response to the need that we see beyond our homes, beyond our backyards? When you look, what do you see? I did a quick glance, found that in Morocco there are 326 million souls, 99% Muslim, 1% Christian, 32.6 million. Algeria, 38.1 million souls, 
99% Muslim, 1% Christian. Nigeria, 17, or excuse me, 174 million souls. 50% Muslim, 40% Christian, 10% ancestral worship. And if you know anything about African culture, you will know the bondage that that brings, the demonic oppression that that is. Somalia, 10.3 million souls, and to the best of those that can determine, 100% Sunni Muslim. If you're a Christian there, we don't even know who you are. Vietnam, 92.5 million souls, 81% no religion. 9% Buddhist, 7% Christian. We need help. The work is bigger than we can handle. And so what we're praying is God's people is, Father, please send out more laborers into your harvest. What we're praying is that the gospel will be taken to each condo, to each ranch house, to each mud hut on this planet. Send out laborers into your harvest to appreciate the magnitude of this need is to be driven to prayer. Now, when we earnestly pray for the Lord to send someone, we cannot at the same time be open to being sent, whether that be just simply across the room, across the street, or across an ocean. What would it look like if you and I committed our whole life, whatever life we have left, to fulfilling the call to make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that Christ commanded. What might that look like if you actually devoted your life to that call? If you're a high school senior trying to figure out where to go to college, maybe flip the whole process on its head. Start by making a list of a half a dozen good churches and then trying to find a college around that church. How often do we go at it from a different way? But if the church is God's means to reach the world, well then let's start there and then put our plans underneath that and say, God, where, where might you send me? Where might I go invest the next four to some of you 12 years of, of your life? Do you own a business? Does your company have offices maybe overseas? Are you aware of churches or mission work that could use your help in some of the cities where your company might have a satellite office? Be God's mean to send you as a paid laborer into his harvest. Are you retired? How will you spend the years that God has given you to steward? Where will you serve his church, seeking to strengthen his body? All of these questions are the sort of questions that disciples must ask as they recognize we're not called just to come and to learn, but to pray that God would also sin. So I close by asking us two questions. Do you know the compassion of Christ personally? 
Do you know everything that the scriptures are portraying and proclaiming of Christ personally? It's one of the most important questions you can ask this morning. Because what the scriptures declare is that Christ has come as a shepherd to call his sheep. And he calls out this morning through the voice of his own word, saying that he has come to deal with the wounds of sin, the sin that you have done and the sin done to you. And he has come to bind up those wounds. And he himself has paid the price for that offense through his own blood. He is a tremendously good shepherd in that he deals with the one thing that will ultimately ruin you. There might be 20 things right now that you say, these things will crush me, but Christ has come to deal with the root, the one thing that will eternally crush you, your sin, by laying down his own life. And that's why we as a church, we would compel you. We would compel you and plead with you to repent of your sin by, by fleeing to Christ, by trusting in his provision and for sinners and, and seeking him for the forgiveness of your sin knowing that right here in his own word, he promises to satisfy, to heal, to restore, to forgive. Do you know this compassion yourself? But then secondly, I also must ask, do you have this compassion for others? If we're to have the heart of Christ for the community and the world that he's placed us in, we must have this compassion. That means we must see rightly. We must have the right vision are you aware of needs? Are you aware of people that you would say they are helpless and harassed? They are broken by the effects of sin and the circumstances that that just embroils up. Those needs. Are you aware of the needs of your neighbors, your classmates, your coworkers? Those needs, those weaknesses are the opportunities, the open door to bring the gospel of grace right into that darkness. To speak of a God who sacrifices himself to remove the suffering of people. Not only the right vision, but the right response. Because you might see it, and I might recognize it, but it doesn't guarantee that I'm actually responding rightly. Just because we see the needs of people around us does not mean that we have the heart of Jesus, unfortunately. We know from Matthew's own testimony that the Pharisees pridefully looked forward to the destruction of sinners. Well, they saw the needs and said, that's kindling for the, for the fires of hell. Well, Jesus lovingly died for the salvation of sinners. See, to see it is not the, the full story. The Pharisees saw the crowds as, as chaff and Jesus saw it as a harvest. Harvest. What an interesting perspective. Do you look upon your neighbors, your colleagues, your classmates, and coworkers with the faith-filled desire that that might be a potential saint right there? That could be a part of this harvest. That one right there. Praise the Lord that at the heart of the Christian faith is a God who sends. First and foremost, there's a loving father who sent his own son to, to be the mediator between wounded and, and sinful people to call out the harassed and helpless to himself. The announcement of this gospel of the kingdom of God is that the king has become our rescuer. 
that, that he has become the one who delivers us from the wages of our own sin and the bondage of our self-induced rebellion, and he makes us accepted citizens because of his own sacrifice. This is the very news that draws us to, to Christ. As you heard it preached and retold this morning, it's the very news that compelled you to say, I must know more of this Jesus. And it's the same news that compels you to say, I must speak more of this Jesus. I want to tell of this good news, sending us back into the world to all who would hear. So church, may the Lord be pleased to raise up more, that he might have a plentiful harvest, bring greater glory to his name, that the anthem of heaven, when we get there, will be even a louder tumult of praise from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And the wonderful thing is that he wants to send us, his church, so let's respond in faith by asking him now to help that he would send as he sees sovereignly fit to send his church into his harvest, trusting in his purposes and means. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that this morning the one message that has brought us together is that you have sent your son for the very purpose of reconciling sinners and that you have accomplished that, that it is finished, said, and done because of his blameless life and his sacrificial death, that you raised him from the grave, that he stands triumphant this morning, and that he will return, that he will judge the nations according to righteousness, that he will usher in a kingdom of righteousness that is without end. Lord, that is our hope, that is the announcement that, that our souls need. At the same time, Lord, we are not content by merely being the benefactors of that. We want to be the ambassadors that are sent with that same message. So, Lord, would you send laborers as you see fit as the sovereign Lord of your harvest. Send us, whether that be into specific people in our lives and our common traffic patterns, whether it be across the room or, or across the ocean. Lord, it's your field. It's your church. As disciples, we're your people. And so, Lord, further your work. Bring about your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.